Hello and thank you for joining Haaretz Weekend. With you in studio, Amir Tibon, filling in this week for my colleague Alison Kaplan-Sommer. As the war in Ukraine rages on, Vladimir Putin was dealt a diplomatic blow when Sweden and Finland decided to apply for NATO membership, potentially bringing the alliance even closer to Russia's doorstep. While the application still faces some hurdles, which we'll discuss on the show, the very fact that it's happening is a political earthquake in those two countries and could have far-reaching impacts beyond their borders. Joining us in studio to discuss these developments in Europe, their global implications, and also what they could mean for us here in Israel, are two Haaretz writers and experts, Amir Oren, a veteran analyst on national security affairs. Hello, Amir. Hi, Amir. And from Stockholm, David Stavro, our man in Sweden, who's been covering the political developments over there. Hi, David. Hi, Amir, and hi, Amir. Great to have both of you on the show today. David, first of all, an update from you. Right now, we know that while Sweden and Finland have both stated that they want to join, they are facing some problems, mostly because of Turkish President Erdogan's opposition to their initiative to join NATO. Could we see the governments in these two countries maybe decide to back away from the decision? No, that's uh, almost impossible. I don't think that can happen. Joining NATO is a longer procedure. We have a decision which has been made by both countries. Now NATO has to start the membership action plan, which usually takes quite a long time, but this time is going to be uh, quite fast because uh, Sweden and Finland have been very close to NATO anyway. But after that, of course, all 30 members have to ratify it, uh, including uh, the Turks. I think what's happening now is uh, Erdogan is trying to negotiate It's probably something that hasn't got to do with Sweden and Finland at all. It may be something to do with uh, the military or with weapons or with uh, disagreements with the EU of uh, immigrants to Europe and or maybe its relations with Russia. But uh, whatever it is, it will probably be solved. And as far as Sweden and Finland at least are concerned, there's no way back now. In the public discourse in Stockholm, where you are right now, the sense is that the train has left the station. And even if there will be some hurdles along the way, eventually it will reach the destination. Absolutely. Both in Stockholm and in Helsinki. I think some people may oppose to the move. And the reason for that is because it's been so fast. Things never happened this fast in uh, Sweden and in Finland, especially not this size. But the train has definitely left the station. Everybody realizes that now, yeah. Amir, looking at this event in historical perspective and looking at the expansion of NATO over the recent decades, why are we making such a big deal out of two more countries in Europe deciding to join? Historically, of course, Lenin reached Russia in order to generate the revolution when he went by train, the same train that you've been talking about, to the Finland station. In St. Petersburg, then Leningrad, then Sankt Petersburg, whatever you want to call it. So this is the other way around, from the Finland station to these two Nordic countries. And the whole notion of neutrality is now at stake, because there's a sort of a vicious circle here. Putin's paranoia caused him to insist that the Ukraine not join NATO. The Ukraine because of that threat, tried to jumpstart the NATO 
affiliation process in a way which will give it a protection. So each tried to preempt the others. Finland and Sweden, with their historical neutrality, and of course not all Nordic or Scandinavian countries are neutral. Norway, for instance, is not only a NATO member, it has contributed a secretary general to the alliance. So the question is, can Russia again bully Finland, with whom, of course, it fought a war, and Sweden, with whom it did not recently fight, of course, historically, they had wars, but in the waters around uh, Sweden, there are always submarines of uh, suspicious identity. And the problem is that uh, while Finland and Sweden will now lengthen once they are um, in NATO, they will lengthen Russia's border with the uh, North Atlantic uh, Treaty Organization, the United States and others will have to contribute forces, either troops or missiles or what have you, to these long borders. So this will put quite a burden on the current members of NATO. David said that uh, despite the headlines about Erdogan, he sees that uh, in Stockholm there is not a lot of concern about the process eventually being finalized. Do you think the Swedes are correct in this assessment? Or maybe they don't understand Mr. Erdogan well enough? The uh, strongest feature of NATO is, of course, Article 5. The Musketeers, one for all and all for one. The weakest point is the consensus needed. Now, out of the uh, 30 current members, the Russians may put pressure on other nations, not necessarily Turkey. You can go uh, down the list, Albania, Bulgaria. There are many governments who might fall prey to Putin's pressure. Turkey, of course, is another case altogether. You well remember, Amir, that a few years ago, when NATO asked Israel to join common endeavor, join in the uh, Mediterranean, Turkey at first blocked it, then there was some dispute between Turkey and Austria. They always tried to get something for their agreement for another non-NATO member to join. Erdogan does have a case if he uh, insists that uh, PKK, the uh, Kurdish terrorist organization, be evicted from Sweden if it is really residing there. But he's not going to block it altogether. He's going to ask for something. You remember that uh, the U.S. has sanctioned Turkey because of the S-400, the uh, Russian anti-missile system, and uh, froze the uh, delivery of F-35 aircraft. He will get something and then will remove his objections. David, can you explain a bit to our listeners the process that has happened in these two countries in the last few weeks that led them to this decision and also to the turnaround in public opinion from having a split or maybe even a majority against this move to suddenly these big majorities in favor of doing it now. Is it driven by some kind of fear, panic, a sense of immediate danger? Or is it maybe some kind of a statement against Russia, something that is being done with pride? What led to the sudden change? I think it's a combination of both things, but I think it's important to point out that Sweden and Finland are really not the same case here. I know maybe from afar it looks like uh, two Nordic countries which are pretty similar must have gone through the same procedure, but it's not the case, at least not over here. What happened in Finland is that Finland, just like Amir says, 
has a very rich and I would say also quite recent history with Russia. It's been part of the Russian Empire in the past. It was occupied by Russia. It fought wars with Russia. It fought Russia in World War II. And it was threatened seriously by the Russians during the Cold War. So for many, many years and the last few decades, all uh, Finland's policy in uh, this case would have been not to annoy or not to provoke the Russians. And they managed to reach some kind of status quo with uh, Moscow. And what happened when Moscow invaded or when Russia invaded Ukraine in February 24th was that uh, it was very obvious, first in public opinion and then through the scissors makers as well, that nobody trusts the Russians anymore. And then came uh, the pro-NATO politicians and pushed forward a move, but a lot of them were already quite positive towards uh, before that. I think the most important uh, persona in the front of this move is the Finnish president, Sauli Ninisko. In Sweden's case, it's very different. Sweden hasn't fought a war since 1814, more than 200 years. And during the 20th century, neutrality, or I think it's more correct to say unalignment, became an ideology question. Sweden tried to position itself as a moral superpower or humanitarian superpower, and it's done that all through the last century with peace keepers and negotiators and enormous funds and diplomatic efforts in setting up organizations like the UN and the EU and the League of Nations before that. Sweden took in asylum seekers from anywhere in the world which went through a civil war, genocide, or even nature catastrophes. So for Sweden, this was ideological. And it was very hard, at least for the Swedish left and center-left, to change their minds. Then came Russia and invaded uh, Ukraine. And this magnificent uh, U-turn happened in a very fast pace, which nobody really expected. If it's fear or panic, I wouldn't say panic, but I think it's a a new, more realistic approach to regions and the political situation these days. So what's worked for Sweden very well for 200 years is pretty obvious for most people that it's not working anymore. The Swedish right already decided that they're pro-NATO quite a long time ago, many years ago, but now it's joined by at least the centre-left. So yes, it's a combination of all those things. Just to illustrate what David just said, here's a suggestion for visitors to Stockholm. After they pay their respects to David, they could possibly go to the military museum, which um, almost nobody does. It's very curious to see how the Swedes want to portray themselves. Outside, in the garden, you see peacekeeping equipment. You see various armored personnel carriers painted white with UN, because this is the pride of the Swedes, has been recently, just as uh, David said. Inside, you have horrendous pictures of Vikings and others, Swedes hacking Norsemen and Norway breaking away from Sweden, which is why the Nobel Prize is uh, being issued in Sweden, except for the Peace Prize, uh, which is uh, in Norway. So obviously, defense has not been at the forefront of uh, the uh, Swedish public discourse until recently when suddenly they fear the specter of uh, Putin's uh, troops and missiles hitting them. Amir, you wrote an article for us in late March when the war was at its start about the military maneuvers and not to read too much into the results of the early days. 
when we look at it today, we are recording this episode in the middle of the week that uh, you know, started on May 16th. It's going to be three months soon to this war. Does this latest development, these two countries asking to join NATO, show that Putin has failed not just militarily, but maybe also in the wider global arena with his moves? You come from a military family. It would not be news to you that uh, there are two kinds of power, decisive power and standing power. Obviously, Putin has failed in trying to get a decision very quickly. In fact, he probably imagined on February the 24th that by the end of that month, that is only five days, February being, of course, a short month, as long as Russia had the presidency of the Security Council, the campaign, the operation, he doesn't call it a war, of course, would be over, and he failed at that. But standing power is something else altogether. A war of attrition can take months or even more. And as long as Putin is in power, if he is not replaced, and even if he does, it is difficult to see the next Russian leadership admitting defeat so soon. In Afghanistan, it took them a decade. One cannot imagine Russia with uh, its uh, historical pride admitting, yes, we tried and failed and now we are leaving. So they are trying to grind Ukraine into the dirt and they will probably succeed at least partly through the peace terms that they uh, will dictate because obviously the political outcome is uh, what's important, not the cost in men and material. And we are seeing these very grim images, even on the day that we are recording, for example, coming from Mariupol, reminding us of the terrible costs of this war. David, I want to pick up on something Amir mentioned earlier when he spoke about the military museum in Stockholm, which I had not visited, I admit, and ask you if you, as someone who lives there and writes and reports to us about the politics and the culture of the country, Do you sense that beyond the idea of joining NATO, there might be a larger societal or cultural change in how the military is viewed, in the importance of defense issues, in the view of the most important issue versus more internal economic factors? At least uh, in Finland, I would say there's very little opposition when it comes to the move of joining NATO. I think there is a rich history of being concerned by the great neighbor on the east and a very long border, over 1,300 kilometers of border, like Amir said. So I'm not sure a lot has changed apart from the decision which was made. It uh, won't be smart now. It won't be wise to stand alone. In Sweden, it's a bit more, like I said before, a bit of a more ideological thing. Like many questions in Swedish politics, It's all about what the Social Democratic Party has decided. Because, like I said, the right and the center-right have been for joining NATO all the time. The populist right, which was against joining NATO, is now for joining NATO. And, of course, the most dominant party, and the party which's been in the leadership in Sweden for almost over all of the last hundred years, made this change of mind. And I don't think it's because they don't think military or the army is important or they didn't used to think that and they do now. Sweden always had a military and Sweden was always concerned of the security issues, some places more, some places less. For example, 
the island of Gotland uh, in the Baltic Sea has always been a strategical point uh, and a place that uh, everybody knew has to be protected. It's just that now the estimation is that nobody knows what to expect from the Russians. So I think uh, what uh, will probably happen now is that Russia will have to react in some way. Nobody's speaking about an invasion or military attack. But uh, perhaps, just like Amir mentioned before, Russian submarines will start uh, popping up in the Baltic Sea close to the shores of Sweden. Certainly Russian aircraft have already been doing this, doing flybys over Swedish territorial waters or over Sweden itself, and maybe cyber attacks, maybe disinformation attacks. And everyone in Sweden knows that these things can happen and have happened. Occasionally, Russia kind of reminds the Swedes that it still exists and that it should uh, sort of remember to uh, take care of its sovereignty. And um, this has been going on, I would say, for at least, if not earlier, since when Russia annexed uh, Crimea. So this is not new. What is new is a political decision, or specifically the Social Democratic Party. And there was all kinds of things going on that perhaps uh, won't be very interesting to your listeners, but they've just changed leadership. There may be a generational change there. So there's a lot of factors uh, playing in this particular issue. Ever since World War II ended, Sweden has, of course, become an object of envy because it was not devastated the way the um, other the countries of Western Europe have been. It was not impoverished the way the victors in World War II were. And it managed a contradiction in terms, a rich welfare society with permissive to boot. And when one goes through Stockholm and one sees the spot where Olaf Palme was assassinated, one is reminded that uh, not too many tragic events have befallen Sweden. And it used to be in the very comfortable position of an interested observer sitting uh, on the fence or in the gallery and watching other countries fight and officiating or mediating or sending peace forces. All of a sudden, it is not an observer. It is a participant. At least it could become one. And this must be jarring. And I don't mean Gunnar jarring. That's an advanced joke, but I like it. Amir, shifting the conversation a bit over here to Israel, We do see that almost uh, three months into this war, there are huge changes happening in many countries. Germany is uh, changing its uh, stance and there is a big debate about its role versus Russia. We're seeing uh, these countries now asking to join NATO. We're seeing this mobilization in Europe to help Ukraine. And yet here in Israel, the policy seems a bit stuck in place since February. Well, of course, there is this uh, Russian angle regarding Syria, but um, this has been uh, commented on very often. But let me bring another point. Russia wants Ukraine to remain a buffer state. It wants to have this buffer between itself and NATO. Now, one may think them paranoid, overly suspicious, but this is their national security doctrine. Israel always had... A similar notion regarding Jordan. Even under Ben-Gurion, Israel wanted the entire world to know that if Iraqi forces, for instance, enter the Hashemite kingdom, even if invited by the monarch, Israel will uh, cross the border and probably cross the Jordan River too, when the West Bank was not uh, under Israeli control. Also, are we saying that the uh, ancient notion of casus belli, 
of just cause is now uh, obsolete. Are we saying that under no circumstances can a country start a war without being attacked just because another country is not behaving to its liking? Obviously, the Israeli case would be Iran. And if the world condemns Putin not regarding his brutality in waging the war by the very fact that when Ukraine refused to do his bidding, he invaded, then Israeli defense doctrine will have to be reassessed. So defense doctrine is one part of it, and there's also the question of our relationship with allies in the West. That's true. Again, each country in the West has its limits. Uh, President Biden on day one announced that there will be no combat uh, troops sent by the United States into the Ukraine, and even the trainers for the weapons sent uh, to the Ukraine will have uh, to work outside the borders for fear of their being killed or wounded or taken prisoner. And yes, Israel's limits are delineated farther away for fear of uh, confronting Russia in Syria. Only recently, uh, earlier this week, there was a report that uh, the Russians made a point of launching missiles at one of the common Israeli Air Force strikes. Obviously, it was a signal. They didn't want uh, to shoot down an aircraft or bring down uh, its uh, crew, but it wanted a shot across the bow in order for Israel to understand that it too could pay a price if it uh, gave Ukraine more than what it has up to now. And this sign was accepted in Jerusalem? Well, in Jerusalem, they are so much involved in domestic politics, in surviving by the hour, not even uh, by the day. The national security mechanism, the uh, Israeli Defense Forces, Mossad, the national security staff, they, of course, have all absorbed it, and they will probably calibrate further strikes so that there will be no probable friction with the Russians. But we have not seen any reinforcement of supplies from Israel to the Ukraine, the problem could arise again if some third party, which has already bought equipment from Israel, asked Israel to give it an end-user certificate to forward this equipment to the Ukraine. The Israelis would hope that the war ends before they have to give the reply. So speaking about uh, when the war ends and the next steps, I do want to ask both of you a bit about that angle. David, one issue that you mentioned in your writing for us on Haaretz.com about Sweden, Finland, and NATO is the possibility that during this process of joining NATO, which is a lengthy process, and we talked about Erdogan's demands, and this could take time, that during the period of waiting, perhaps Russia could decide to punish one of these countries. How much of a concern is that right now? I've spoken to uh, both members of parliament in Sweden and in Finland and to various experts and also just, you know, following the press in both countries, it's obvious that everybody sees the next few months as the most dangerous period because these are the months between making the decision and applying and actually becoming full members, which of course then gives you the protection of the three musketeers, uh, one for all and all for one that Tamir just talked about, uh, the famous Article 5. So these months are going to be dangerous. And what Sweden and Finland did in order to minimize the risk 
is uh, a lot of diplomacy. So we know that, for example, the Finnish president met with uh, American President Biden, who probably gave some kind of assurances, even though they're not exactly known to everyone. We know that Boris Johnson visited uh, Finland and Sweden and gave assurances that uh, the UK will stand uh, by Finland and Sweden in this uh, very sensitive period, which is important because uh, the UK is a major player and also, uh, like I wrote in my article, a nuclear power. So it's very important. Swedish Prime Minister and Finnish Prime Minister visited Berlin and got assurances from Chancellor Scholz about Germany standing beside Sweden and Finland. And yesterday, also the other Nordic countries, which are very, very important here, Norway and Denmark, made uh, promises. So, so there's a lot of diplomacy, both on the surface and under the surface, in order to make sure that everybody knows that um, if the Russians decide to act too dramatically, like I said before, of course they will do something, but if they decide to cross the line, the rest of NATO, the rest of the world, the rest of Europe will react. Let me just add about the Erdogan statement, which everybody here has been following during the last weekend, and uh, in case uh, people uh, who are listening didn't notice, the statement sort of went up and down. The volume of uh, Turkey's position was sort of um, obvious that there will be an objection, but not uh, all the objection that could be possible. And I think in the case of Erdogan, everybody realizes that this is some kind of a negotiation. And it's about that. But there's another thing that I think that should be noticed here, and this is my opinion, it's not based on facts. But I think when you talk about international relations, international affairs, you should remember that there's always a certain amount of cynicism and that when it comes to leaders, a lot of times they don't say exactly what they mean and don't mean exactly what they say. But there is a limit. And I think when a Turkish president, like Erdogan, blames countries like Finland and Sweden for harboring terrorism, I think most reasonable people can see that uh, he's at least stepping by that limit and that it doesn't make any sense at all and it probably won't take. That kind of claim is very, very obvious that the Turks are after something and this is not something that will end with uh, finishing the Swedish and Finnish uh, bid to join NATO. We've spent several episodes of this podcast in recent months trying to understand what's inside Vladimir Putin's mind. I don't think we can even start the discussion about what is inside Erdogan's mind. Uh, and I hope we don't need to, but it's definitely an interesting question. What does he really mean? Amir, moving from the debate on what could happen between Russia, Finland and Sweden to the Ukraine war itself. You talked earlier about a war of attrition that could last for months. Could we see Russia further losing ground like we saw in the area around Kiev? Could we see a similar scenario in the south of Ukraine, maybe even in the east? One of the mysteries of this war is why has uh, Zelensky decided to remain passive and reactive? Uh, he could have launched attacks inside Russia. There was only one very close to the border. But there is no systematic counter-campaign of the sort, for instance, the Chechens conducted when they were attacked. And uh, we might see that, too, ahead of the final negotiations, at least in order to save face. But as long as the war goes on, Russia cannot afford to be overextended 
and hit Finland or Sweden or anybody else. And let me make a couple of uh, quick points regarding your earlier chat with uh, David. First of all, regarding Erdogan. Erdogan is mercurial. Some Turkish journalists have said that this is uh, because of diabetics. And um, I happened uh, several years ago to see him for more than a day in a Rio de Janeiro international conference. And his behavior was really atypical. You see world leaders, usually they know um, how to uh, carry themselves. He was definitely exceptional, very erratic. The British are not really in control of their senses. And uh, only this week, the uh, first minister of Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon, has been uh, in Washington for independent talks, even though she was relegated to second-level uh, meetings with the Deputy Secretary of State, uh, Wendy Sherman. So if Biden wants to put uh, his money where his mouth is, he can fill in while the Ukraine war is going with a bilateral commitment to Sweden and Finland to come to their defense if attacked by the Russians. So obviously what uh, the Russians want, their fallback position or the minimal gains would be the eastern side of Ukraine. If you ever fly over the Ukraine, and uh, by the way, the route from Stockholm to uh, Israel or at least to, to Frankfurt would take you above the Ukraine, you can see that uh, east of the Dnieper, there are vast tracts which are uninhabited, some agricultural and others. And the easternmost parts of the Ukraine are obviously what the Russians want, in addition to the southernmost parts bordering the Black Sea. So the Russians will hold on to those, including the uh, two quote-unquote autonomous districts, and they will call it a day. And that means that it will be perhaps a long war, maybe at the end of it, a divided Ukraine. Definitely. Uh, West Ukraine and uh, East Ukraine. We had uh, West Germany and East Germany during the Cold War. This might be the practical result of this war. Or as we have come to know it, the East and the West Banks, but of the Dnieper River and not the Jordan River. Fascinating conversation. Thank you very much, Amir Oren, here in studio with us, and David Stavro from Stockholm. And uh, to our listeners, if you want to keep following their interesting articles on these strategic political issues we discussed today. Go on haaretz.com, get writer alerts for David and Amir. You will not regret it. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Thank you, Thank Amir. You. And that's it for today's episode. Thank you very much to our producer, Maya Benissan, and to you listeners. We'll be back again next week with another episode of Haaretz Weekly. Until our next meeting, Shalom from Tel Aviv. <laughs>